Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Watson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NC School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. To paraphrase an old adage, whenever a people forget their history, they are bound to repeat it. At no time has this point been more relevant than it is today as we move forward toward the November 2020 election. As a vivid reminder of where we have come in this state and what we have endured, we take this opportunity to look back at November 10th, 1898, in order to examine the history and the impact of the violent overthrow of a legitimately elected city government in Wilmington by a coalition of white supremacists, Confederates, and Democratic Party forces, which had the purpose of totally destroying political participation and cooperation between African Americans and whites. The history of that coup d'etat was initially rebranded and then totally suppressed until Dr. Helen Edmonds, a professor at North Carolina uh, College, provided an exposure of this event in 1951. Nevertheless, the violent overthrow and the impact of it, which had claimed the lives of hundreds of people and the banishment of leaders of that city's fusion government was being experienced in the daily lives of African-Americans in Wilmington and throughout North Carolina. During the Reconstruction period and up until 1898, African-Americans were active participants in the political affairs of towns, cities, and states. After 1898, that participation vanished and gave to the white supremacist victors the opportunity to enact Jim Crow laws for the express purpose of disfranchising African-Americans in North Carolina and that occurred for at least the next 80 years. Wilmington became the sleepy port city where political participation by African-Americans was violently suppressed until the 1971 Wilmington student uprising. And this resulted in the celebrated Wilmington 10 case. Similarly, Political participation by African-Americans anywhere in North Carolina was virtually non-existent for the exact same reasons. Tonight, we will discuss that history and its continuing impact upon North Carolina politics. Joining us for this discussion are Dr. Timothy Tyson, a historian and author of several groundbreaking books and the senior research scholar at the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies. And he is joined by Dr. Kenneth Jankin, the professor of African-American and Dysphoria Studies and the director of the Center for the Study of American South at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. 
So to our experts, we want to thank you, first of all, for uh, joining us for this discussion. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. Uh, Can I just make one correction? So okay. the, the website you were looking at, I think, was a little outdated. I, I used to be the director of the Center for the Study of the American South, but I am my term ended uh, a few years ago. So anyway, but I still am a professor at UNC. So. Well, as long as you're professing, then you're in the right place. <laughs> but let me just start out our discussion because both of you are, are experts uh, in this area. You studied uh, North Carolina uh, politics and the uh, particularly the affairs in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, can you just briefly talk about the, uh, the importance of the uh, 1898 uh, Wilmington overthrow and what led to, uh, uh, to, that, uh, to that event? Well, I, I think, sort of uh, I, Tim? Uh, sure, I, I think it's really important to uh, think about uh, 1894 and 1896 and 1897, because we, you know, we, it's important what happened in Wilmington is a landmark event in the construction of a one party white supremacist state uh, you know, and, and uh, but, uh, you know, I, the most shocking thing to me when I learned about this, these events many years ago was, you know, that I hadn't heard about them, uh, but also that I hadn't heard about the fusion movement and I hadn't heard about an interracial government uh, that came out of the, of the interracial social movement um, that not only uh, not only was Wilmington a stronghold of that movement but, uh, and, and ruled by a fusion coalition, but, but uh, the state was. The fusion movement had won the governorship in both U.S. Senate seats and swept the legislature and won every statewide election and uh, really never was beaten at the polls. So that uh, is just worth sitting upon. I, they weren't, uh, you know, all uh, interracial, you know, visionaries and, and uh, people who were beyond the white supremacy, the notion of white supremacy that was so common in the day, but it was a very hopeful experiment in uh, a multiracial democracy that uh, was crushed by force. So it's just, I just think it's important to sit with that a little bit because it's, it's more, the violence uh, is easy, somehow today, I think is easier to imagine than the, than the coalition. Um, but you know, that's just a, the violence itself also gets framed as a Wilmington uh, race riot, or you know, I think uh, that uh, H. on Prater, who called it the Wilmington massacre and coup, is really more on target. But the uh, as far as the terminology goes, but uh, you know, it it the, the focus on it does overlook the fact that it's really a coup against the state government. That the election of 1898 was conducted with armed white men. Uh, protecting the polls against uh, black voters and known fusion, white fusionists. And that, uh, you know, there are swaths of the state that had uh, heavy black majorities that got where the white supremacy campaign won large, you know, votes. So uh, the state government is really seized. The Wilmington uh, 
the violence, you know, mass murder in the streets of Wilmington was three days after the election. And it's kind of the capstone. I'm not saying it wasn't uh, necessary or vital to the white supremacy movement, uh, which had already seized uh, state power in this, in this uh, illegitimate uh, violent seizure of power, seizure of power through seizure of power through violence and massive electoral fraud and racial uh, demagoguery uh, of a poisonous sort. The, uh, but, but uh, you know, and Wilmington's, and it's important in that. And, and also it's important to recall that this didn't happen one day, but that for the period between 1898 and 1901, the, it's a very violent uh, revolutionary time a white supremacy revolution that overturned uh, legitimate democratic government. And there's a you know, second wave of the white supremacy campaign in 1900 uh, that, that in, after which the vote was taken from African-American citizens of North Carolina. When uh, the men who organized that, Josephus Daniels, who's the publisher of the News Observer, and Furnifold Simmons, who became a six-term U.S. Senator and, probably the most powerful machine politician in the history of North Carolina. <clears throat> and, uh, can't help me out here. <laughs> I'm sorry, blank it up. The, uh, anyway, the, the, uh, when, uh, editor Daniels, when, uh, Josephus Daniels was in his dotage and in 1942 in World War II with all the black activism that was boiling all over the country and in, in, in North Carolina in particular, he wrote to a friend of her, his and he told about his conversation with Governor Acock, whom they had installed in 1900. The, and he went to Governor Acock and congratulated him and said, you know, thank you for removing the Negro from, from uh, politics in North Carolina forever, you know, in permanent good government on the, on the, uh, with, by the party of the white man and resolving the Negro problem for all time. And uh, he said that Acock said, uh, thank you, but we have not resolved the Negro problem for all time. Uh, the question of race will be with us. We have perhaps resolved this for 25 years if we're lucky, but that this will be, this is a, will be a, this is a problem that cannot be resolved and that every generation will have to resolve for itself. And I think that uh, continues to be the case. Jim? I, I just wanted to uh, uh, second uh, what Tim said, but um, I wanted to add uh, what, you know, a little bit about the substance of the, uh, uh, the fusion movement, because I think when this story is retold, uh, when the fusion movement is added in to, uh, uh, to this history, it is often uh, limited to uh, a discussion of uh, representation that, you know, the fusion movement was, was uh, 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 blacks and whites and then, and that's the, uh, that's the extent of the, of the good of it. But as I recall from the state report that uh, you helped to uh, oversee uh, that was published uh, about the 1898 uh, 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 massacre. 
that the discussion of the types of policies and politics that the fusion movement uh, tried to implement across the state included things like uh, uh, more elective offices in, 1890, you know, in the 1890s uh, and 1880s, many of the, st the state and local offices were appointed. So people were shut out of that. Uh, all manner of common people were, were, were shut out of that. So there was more, more, uh, more democratic representation. There, was, uh, there were severe grievances against the railroads. And you know, this is the time of, uh, of uh, you know, this is the Gilded Age and uh, the robber barons and the railroads in North Carolina, I suspect as everywhere else, were uh, land grabbers and uh, enriching themselves at the public trough. Uh, the fusion movement tried to control that. They tried to control the financial institutions and the real estate uh, developers and the uh, the men on the go, the men on, you know on the up and up who were uh, stealing from the public. And these were so even though as as Tim points out that we shouldn't think of. 1894 and 1896 and 1897 as a Valhalla and a uh, uh, a movement, a, a kumbaya moment, a movement that was free of uh, free of uh, racist animus. It was a time where people of good um, intentions and good politics were trying to solve the problems that were affecting the majority of uh, of people who people who we would call, I guess today, you know, the what the ninety nine percent. They were trying to solve those problems of farmers and sharecroppers and uh, uh, workers of all sorts and middle class shopkeepers against the people who were um, who were pillaging uh, the public. So I just want to add that in there. So. Well, you know, it, it was really a, an exciting period. I mean, the thought that. Um, you had these uh, free Africans uh, before the Civil War, and then those uh, newly freed uh, Africans from uh, enslavement uh, who were able to emerge after the Civil War and to uh, join with, uh, with whites to participate in the development of a, a government across the state uh, where there was participation although there were problems with it, but there was this participation uh, across race lines uh, to create a, um, a society that uh, people kind of talk about glowingly now as a goal. Uh, and uh, they were able to uh, achieve that, although there was uh, constant uh, uh, attacks by Confederate forces, by the clans and red shirts and people of uh, of, of of that ilk. ilk. Uh, so that was that was to me, that's always been an exciting thing uh, to me, just to uh, to to imagine how that uh, how that occurred, mm -hmm. uh, and then the overthrow. And I think and Tim talks about it. You know, it was not just a one day event although the overthrow itself was, but there was a, uh, a period of three or four years where these uh, Confederate forces consolidated uh, their strength to take away uh, the uh, vote and to uh, 
discouraged polit political participation uh, by African-Americans through force of violence. Uh, and uh, can you talk a little bit about you know, that period right after 1898, uh, where the uh, Democratic uh, Party leadership was uh, uh, trying to uh, finalize its disfranchisement efforts uh, to get African-Americans out of uh, government and where uh, there was now a total uh, vanishing of this political participation by African-Americans across the state when it used to be uh, kind of robust up until uh, up until that point. And y'all know this history much better than me. Mm -hmm. You know, ACOC, uh, Governor ACOC, who you know, was uh, installed in 1900 by the white supremacy campaign, um, said from in one of his speeches thereafter said, uh, we have ruled by force, we can rule by fraud, but we wish to rule by law. What the way I see ACOC, ACOC has been was was portrayed to me as I was growing up and and is still often portrayed as being sort of the icon of white of not white excuse me of progressive North Carolina, the 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 uh, educate the first education governor. Most often he's talked about in terms of public education. The uh, what he really was 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 a white supremacist revolutionary who helped overthrow the government and then take state power. But then he becomes the consolidator, as you uh, say, or he becomes the, the uh, consolidator of their victory. And you can't, uh, even Joseph Stalin, who tried, uh, said, you can't shoot everyone. <laughs> you have to, you know, gain support. The, his uh, picking out public education as his signal issue is not an accident, but uh, many of the white people in the Fusion Coalition and the uh, African-Americans as well, public schools, a system of free tax-supported public schools for all children, uh, albeit segregated, was a revolutionary concept that they were very much in favor of, but white conservatives hated public education, uh, just considered it anathema. And so uh, for ACOC to, to turn to support for public schools, granted that he, he his support for black pupils was the, was a quarter, a third or a quarter, what it was for white peoples. And, but uh, was, a, was a trying to, to uh, pacify their former opponents and get people to see something in this order for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the politics of, uh, politics is always uh, uh, Les McCann's favorite, favorite uh, jazz dictum uh, compared to what? Or, <laughs> Half a loaf is better than a kick in the head. So, so what he was trying to do was offer a half a loaf, particularly the whites, poor whites who had been a part of the fusion coalition uh, on the basis of their economic interests and uh, in you know, the practical arithmetic of politics in addition to some uh, willingness to see African-Americans as, as uh, citizens, fellow citizens and allies. But uh, so public education was his, uh, was a way of, uh, putting oil on the waters and calming things down because the first thing that a successful revolutionary has to do, having taken power by force, is to say no more violence, that we, you know, rule of law, they try to, uh, to uh, you know, conciliate and consolidate uh, since to make a, a stable social order of which they are, you know, 
in charge of. So uh, the ACOC is really that and represents that, uh, you know, at the same time, of course, this is when the Jim Crow laws are passed. This is when uh, a one party state, uh, a racial state that rules from, from uh, 1898 and 1900 until uh, the when the civil rights movement toppled that to some, in some measure uh, to win at least you know, full uh, citizenship uh, in, a, in a narrow legal sense for African-Americans. We're gonna go ahead and take a quick break and then when we come back, we'll hear from Ken. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Dr. Timothy Tyson, who is a historian and the senior research scholar at the Duke University Center of Documentary Studies. And Dr. Kenneth Jenkin, who is a professor of African-American diaspora studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we've been talking about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre and Coup. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. The right to protest is a fundamental right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment and is an essential component of democracy. Though demands for social and political change have become more expansive in recent decades with the rise of social media, mass gatherings and demonstrations against those in power are no stranger to the world and the nation's political history. In fact, for centuries, Americans have taken to the streets to make our voices heard, to affect change, and to fill and display the power and solidarity of mass gatherings even before the adoption of the First Amendment in 1791. Your constitutional right to protest is most protected in traditional public forums such as streets, sidewalks, and parks. Police may not break up a gathering unless there is a clear and present danger of riot, disorder, interference with traffic, or other immediate threat to public safety. The recent unlawful and unwarranted death of an African-American man, George Floyd, have ignited many around the nation to invoke their First Amendment protections to speak out against police brutality and corrupt practices by law enforcement. Unfortunately, acts such as the one this nation has recently been confronted with are not new occurrences and may occur again. This tragedy only confirms why protests are so vital to our problematic system. Protests bring people together, help bypass news blackouts and an unsympathetic media, provides an essential voice for the people, and especially people of color, and as we have seen, compel those in power to invoke change. To learn more about your right to protest, more information is at aclu.org. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're talking with uh, Tim Tyson and uh, Kenneth Jenkins about the uh, impact of the 1898 uh, Wilmington uh, coup d'etat that occurred and uh, its uh, continuing impact on uh, politics in uh, in North Carolina. 
And uh, when we uh, took our break, uh, we were waiting for Ken to provide some, some comments about the uh, period right after the post period uh, of 1898, uh, leading to the uh, introduction of uh, Jim Crow laws uh, in, the, uh, in the state and uh, what that uh, created in terms of the uh, of North Carolina politics. So uh, Ken? Yeah. I just would add uh, to what Tim had said that um, consolidating uh, the coup uh, was not uh, was not an easy uh, business. Um, you know, people who are, and I think, you know, we as we talk about history, you know, history is made and then it's remembered and uh, recounted and. I, you know, even as we talked earlier about 1894 and 1896 and 1897, uh, it's important to remember the diff that there was a popular movement that didn't disappear in 1898. It was suppressed, uh, but people still had feelings and people still had uh, interests that didn't go away. And uh, between 1898 and 1900, I think, you know, ACOC became, you know, the education governor. Uh, and we should remember as well that not only did he, did his plan for education include uh, uh, vastly reduced sums for uh, uh, black schools, but it also included reduced sums for white schools compared to what the fusion government had proposed uh, you know, for years uh, before 1890, before 1898, uh, that um, that campaign for governor in 1900, and which also came with the constitutional amendment disfranchise, you know, the disfranchisement amendment. Uh, as I recall, the, the the terms for voter qualification were uh, were either property or educational uh, qualifications, and um, there were a lot of whites who also were not um, uh, wouldn't have met the uh, the education or the literacy qualifications, and so in order to get them on board, um, ACOC's education plan was what uh, was put out there to bring whites up to uh, uh, to a, a sufficient level of literacy to uh, 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 to support the the constitutional amendment and support his uh, uh, support his election. You don't have to do those sort of things if uh, if everybody's behind you anyway. So I think there's a lot of contention and there is uh, uh, and uh, a lot of conflict that had to be managed and suppressed and uh, suppressed by force, uh, you know, in 1898 and then in the years uh, succeeding that. And also um, an intensification of the uh, racist propaganda uh, to, uh, uh, to divide, you know, to make people think that they have, uh, uh, that their interests are different. Uh, when in fact there is uh, the, the interests overlap to a great deal, even if they're not uh, uh, identical, they they certainly overlap, and uh, 
I think that's, you know, that's the significance of those two years. And, you know, it, it took more. And, and my guess is that if you look at the history from 1900 to 1920, say, when, when there is a, uh, when the, uh, the volume on uh, racist propaganda is turned up, it probably has something to do with uh, uh, unrest and dissatisfaction uh, on one side of the color line or the other, and probably both. Yeah. I think uh, uh, we, I agree with everything Professor Jenkins just said. I, we should also, I don't think we should take the literacy uh, test too seriously because there was what was called the grandfather clause, which was the great, you know, <laughs> advance in, in, uh, in voter suppression of that whole era, which was that if your grandfather voted, then you didn't have to take the white supremacy, uh, the, the, excuse me, the, the, uh, the, the literacy test. It didn't apply to you if your grandfather could vote, which obviously applied only to white people. Um, so, uh, and then also the, I think his, his point is so good. And, and just to add on to that, there also, we're then heading into the age of lynching, you know, the heyday of extra legal racial murder, public violence that is, uh, you know, a, an announcement from and about social power in the state. And that, uh, so that the violence does, as he pointed out, continue to be uh, pivotal and a central part of white supremacist program. And, you know, the, the mention of the, the racist propaganda, uh, the suppression of the black vote um, makes me think about, you know, why it was so vitally important for those who wanted to um, overthrow the Wilmington um, powers that be or, or you know, the, which included African-Americans, of course. And so when we think about the fusion movement and that allowed for uh, Wilmington, which was predominantly black at the time, to be governed in large part by African Americans uh, and and those that were interested in these populist um, issues. And so, can you mention the racist propaganda? Can you talk about how it was that uh, those that wanted to that were so offended by black rule, how they used racist propaganda to um, help galvanize people who may have aligned interests to decide not to, um, not to, uh, or to be dissatisfied with black rule, which, which led to, you know, the night, the 1898 election. And so we've talked about kind of the fusion movement. We've talked about what happened after the coup. How was it possible that the fusion movement was was basically disbanded in, in Wilmington and then we kind of saw that throughout the state? Well, I think, you know, the way I think about it is, is it was partly uh, or perhaps largely a matter of uh, repetition. Uh, you know, that uh, the, uh, the News and Observer, uh, a newspaper, uh, which was influential uh, throughout the state, uh, uh, you know, daily in its headlines, screaming uh, uh, racist, uh, racist stories about uh, 
African Americans getting out of their place, assaulting uh, white women, uh, uh, you know, it, all manner of, of, of things like that. And you know, if you're fed a steady diet of that, and you're fed a steady diet of uh, street corner agitators who are uh, uh, who are uh, saying the same thing, um, it uh, the effect is. Uh, I mean, I think the effect is 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 at least twofold. One is uh, it begins to. Uh, change people's minds begins it, it cause it causes among whites at any rate to uh, uh, question their assumptions and uh, adopt new ones and I think it also had uh, uh, to some degree it also had an effect on uh, on uh, on uh, African Americans and you know that that's part of the that's part of uh, the repression so I think there is uh, there is an element of um, of just uh, flooding, you know, flooding print and uh, and communication ways of communicating uh, that uh, stifled uh, any and that stifled uh, uh, the, the the cooperation. So and so, I'll, I'll just you know leave it at that. You know, at at, at the uh, beginning of the Reconstruction period. One of the uh, major priorities of the African-American community was education and the development of, uh, of public schools. And, uh, it, it, and, and it's kind of intriguing that uh, at that point that those uh, newly enfranchised uh, uh, African-Americans uh, created segregated schools, uh, not integrated schools. Uh, and that education push uh, focused on uh, not having uh, the uh, oppressor to teach your children. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the beginning of the uh, Jim Crow era, uh, Tim talked about uh, Governor Acock becoming the uh, education governor, uh, which seemingly was a uh, pickup on the same priority that uh, these uh, newly freed or newly enfranchised African-Americans uh, had, and now they were expanding this uh, education thrust uh, and making that a part of the uh, white uh, political uh, agenda. But the segregated schools uh, continued, and one of the hallmarks that uh, you had in the African-American community, African community, even during, during, during Jim Crow, was this uh, excellent uh, school system. Uh, where uh, African-Americans were uh, educated and then uh, left the state uh, by, the, uh, by, by, by droves. Uh, and I'm, I'm you know, and kind of looking at the commonality of interest on both the black and the uh, white side uh, that should have caused people to align rather than to uh, create uh, these uh, racial animosities. And but for this kind of steady drumbeat, I think that April, uh, referred to uh, that kept this racial animus uh, engendered and, in, and inspired that those interests should have come together, uh, but racism uh, divided it. Um, can you kind of talk about other commonalities between the two races during this Jim Crow period that was divided as a result of this 
racial animus that uh, continued uh, to, uh, to kind of guide the politics. Professor brought it up earlier, but I think it's important to stress is that most everybody, this was an agricultural society, we had an expanding new commercial, <clears throat> commercial and uh, manufacturing uh, part of the economy, but uh, which, by the way, bankrolled the banks uh, and the manufacturing class, sort of these New South industrialists uh, and, and bankers paid for the white supremacy campaign, provided the white supremacist revolutionaries in Wilmington, for example, with state-of-the-art weapons. Uh, but be that, what I was getting to is that uh, most people were farmers, black and white, and if, uh, there was an agricultural depression that began in 1873 and really continued for the rest of the 19th century, in which a lot of farmers lost their land. Uh, more white farmers had land, but black and white farmers lost land. And there, uh, the, the, uh, the small scale uh, agricultural enterprise, uh, whether, whether black or white, were discriminated against by the railroads, for example, being charging uh, the small scale farmers more to bring their crops to market than they did for, for large concerns and, and uh, major planters and the banks discriminated against them as well. So the, uh, in, a, in a business that's very capital intensive. So uh, they, were th they were really up against the wall as on a, an economic basis. And, and uh, so that I think is part of what sends white farmers to think of the possibility of aligning themselves with black farmers because their economic interests were really quite directly identical in that sense. Um, and what white what poor whites were fed instead of, you know, in the wake of the, the uh, white supremacy campaigns and during them was that they were fed uh, a poisonous uh, slander. You know, there was a old fusionist uh, uh, preacher joke uh, that said, the closer a black man gets to a ballot box, the more he looks like a rapist. And the, what they, the white supremacy campaigns did was, was to sling this uh, invective this image of the black beast rapist who was a threat to white womanhood. And uh, the, the News and Observer used devastating cartoons of the, <clears throat> the incubus of black Negro domination, it was called. The fact that black, I think as Professor Dawson just pointed out, the uh, black political participation was in and of itself regarded as domination uh, and something that unspeakable that could not be accepted because you know if you if you sided with the with the fusionists with the African with African Americans you know you were not white you were not a man you were you know the things that are very cut to the heart of human identity and the way people uh, and the uh, feel about who they are uh, were used to whip uh, white men in line and make them. Uh, shame them and, and uh, try to, try, you know, try to make a, a white men see a black men as their, as their adversaries. 
All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with Dr. Timothy Tyson, a historian and the senior research scholar at the Duke University Center of Documentary Studies, and Kenneth Jenkin, who is the professor of African-American and the Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we've been talking about the Wilmington 1898 massacre and coup d'etat and the impact that that had on this North Carolina community and North Carolina generally. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Since its debut in August of 1995, WNCU 90.7 FM, licensed to North Carolina Central University, has consistently fulfilled its mission to provide quality, culturally appropriate programming to public radio listeners in the Triangle area. The format of this listener-supported public radio station entertains the jazz aficionado, educates the novice jazz listener, and disseminates news and information relative to the community at large. For more information about WNCU 90.7 FM, please visit its website at www wncu.org. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been the Legal Eagle Review. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Tim Tyson, the Senior Research Scholar at the Duke University Center of Documentary Studies, and Kenneth Jenkin, who is a Professor of African American and the Diaspora Studies at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, Tim, right before the break, you were talking about uh, the, again, the propaganda and how the white supremacists were using race really as a wedge issue to try and encourage white folks who may have interests that align with black folks not to support the the fusionist agenda um, and not allow for for black rule. And, And as you were talking, I couldn't help but think about you know, where we are today. And when we think about the interest that affects um, many African American communities, many, many white communities, and how even today we have people who are voting against interest. And it seems from my perspective as a black woman that the vote against interest is not because uh, the, the individuals that are being um, voted into office are really looking out for you know, regular folk, it's because the idea of having of one being aligned with issues uh, that might seem, you know, to be African American or Black issues, uh, or having um, governance by or, uh, or having the government run e- even in little part by African Americans or Black folk, is is just counter to the stories that have been, you know, restated over and over again. Can you talk about, um, and Ken, I'd like to get your thoughts as well. Can you talk about how, when looking at the Wilmington 1898 events, uh, how they should inform our understanding of what is happening today 
And, and as you talk about that, can you share your thoughts about whether we can understand present day um, events without having an understanding of our history? I know that was a lot. <laughs> um, I think, uh, hmm. I think that what was, uh, what was uh, important about 1898 or what was significant was the degree to which um, uh, the, uh, uh, the white supremacist uh, movement um, was able to change the, uh, was able to change uh, the politics or, I mean, I don't really like to use the term, but we're able to change the conversation, you know, that, when you have uh, uh, landless farmers, black and white, or even uh, white, white farmers who own some land but are threatened, and black farmers who have lost their land, or black uh, uh, farm workers, you know, day laborers who have, you know, who just as a way to make a living, as a way to get on in the world, have a lot in common and ought, and had a history of working in common, even if they were working separately. You know, in other words, that there was, you know, there was certainly a color line there, but they were able to find a way to cooperate uh, and change people's minds through the course of, uh, uh, through the course of trying to achieve something. Um, that what's stunning is that in 1898, you know, that process, that that process culminates and then there's a period of consolidation afterward where the conversation is changed and suddenly what's no longer important is you know how are you going to get your crops to market how are you going to get paid at the end how are you going to avoid bankruptcy and it's uh you know the the black guy down the street or the black guy in the town next you know uh uh next door uh threatening me um and I think that, uh, and, and I think, as I think about today, you know, that we can talk about uh, things, of, you know, what is of concern to, uh, to people, what's of concern to the majority of people, uh, you know, and, and especially intensified since, uh, you know, since March and since the, the pandemic broke out in full force, you know. I need health care, for example. I, you know, not just health insurance, but I, you know, if I get sick, what's going to happen to me? I've lost my job. How am I going to eat? How am I going to feed my family? Um, uh, you know, how am I going to go visit my family that may live in another state because everything's totally out of, out of control. These seem to me to be things that you could build, uh, uh, a very broad base of support. You know, if I get my job back, uh, you know, am I going to have to go back at a lower wage? Um, I just saw that, what do they call essential workers have lost their, uh, are losing their premium pay from the pandemic. So Target's cutting wages, Amazon's cutting wages, Walmart's cutting wages back to where they were. You know, these are all things that people have to, uh, uh, to do to get on in the world. And it seems to me that um, that what is becomes a distraction and rather well is all the propaganda 
that it, all manner of propaganda uh, that comes out, whether it is uh, uh, racist tropes and um, or uh, or anti-vaccine. I mean, God, there's just like the type of distractions has just increased, right? Uh, uh, and you, you can expect that there will be the, the, the people who have, who are in power and want to maintain power are going to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. And, um, and in our country, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is, is uh, racist stuff. Not all of it is some of it, but, but a lot of it is, and we can expect that to increase. And it seems to me that, the way 1898 can inform uh, this is to show one the the the, the, the disastrous effects of that uh, uh, propaganda campaign and the campaign of violence, but also that you know that there was a time when people had those interests and uh, struggled to maintain that, and you have to figure out how to make that stronger. No, I, I think when uh, looking at politics today, just as we said, we were looking at politics in the 1890s, uh, it's important to look at the diffusion politics that's going on today. One of the things driving this moment of immense change and, and uh, tumult at the moment is the young people in the streets. Well, if you look at the film clips, you see that the, that's a multiracial mix of folk uh, protesting. And uh, that's, uh, is very threatening to uh, entrench power. Um, we also saw, you know, seen in North Carolina the work with uh, uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber and the the uh, the J Coalition and you know the Moral Monday movement and then now the Poor People's Campaign uh, that he is spearheading. That's a national sort of a national version of the same fusion politics. That th those two things, with you know, both in an organizing kind of way, and then the way that young people are organizing themselves, are important and exciting uh, developments for me. I did want to also just talk about two things about the politics of, that the uh, white supremacy revolution created that I felt deeply when I was uh, and knew cl clearly without being told when I was growing up. One was South, the South. The South would do this. The South would do that. There was an invisible parenthetical word, white, in front of the South. Mm -hmm. And it made, uh, so it, it, that white people were encouraged to have a kind of uh, ethnic uh, identity of being Southerners that excluded black people that you didn't realize that, you know, once you integrate your South and you, you know, that's just a profound change in how you understand understand things and you know the people who are upset about the confederate monuments being moved you know they think of themselves i'm not saying they're not eaten up with white supremacy uh you know i'm just a recovering white supremacist myself but they you know i'm just i'm really saying that what that inside themselves it makes them feel like their sense of belonging and sense of identity is being challenged uh and they're being encouraged to think of that and donald trump is beating the drum about you know confederate monuments as if he gave them the uh but that is a, a way of calling people to act against their own interests. Also, when I was uh, young and growing up in the crumbling days of Jim Crow, formal legal Jim Crow, uh, the conversation among white people, if you made uh, 
if you oppose segregation or questioned uh, segregation, the answer back was always, so you want your daughter to marry one? Is that it, your sister? Is that, what you, is that right? So that'd be all right with you, wouldn't it? Uh, wouldn't, you know, it, and it, that was supposed to be just the ace of spades, end of conversation, right? And if you said, well, uh, that, you know, what kind of, who is this person that wants to marry my sister? Would he be a good family member? Is he, does he love her? Uh, you know, what are the prospects for their happiness? Um, if you ask something like that, they would just fritz out because the, the, they had this feeling that this was this, this totally pornographic and appalling and disgusting idea about what that relationship must be about. And, uh, but when, when pressed, it, it always went from there to rage because they, there was no why. They didn't know why they found that so objectionable. And of course, as historian Glenda Gilmore says, murder does its, sometimes does its best work in memory. Uh, after we forget what that was about, uh, we were, we, you know, that propaganda uh, lived on was very much, you know, I, I must have been eight years old when I realized, I knew without anyone saying that race and sexuality are all wrapped around each other in some kind of, and of course your sense of manhood, you know, you're supposed to protect white women. It just this kind of stuff, this poison that continued to live in people. And that is, those, those things are played on even now uh, in contemporary politics. Have, have we been able to move past the racial uh, animus and the attempt to uh, exploit that in our politics uh, today? I would say no. Uh, the, it, you know, white supremacy is this amazingly malleable uh, notion that God has created us on some kind of hierarchy of moral, cultural, intellectual worth with lighter skinned people at the top and darker skinned people at the bottom. It's such a powerful idea in our culture and is propped up with, by, by these kind of poisonous ideas. Uh, um, it, it's the remarkable thing is that it reinvents itself so well. And that, so we get same song, different verse over and over, you know, as Amiri Baraka called the changing same. Uh, I, yes. I would say uh, it's too soon to tell in, 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 in some way. I think I see what Tim is uh, saying. And I think that is certainly something that uh, there are attempts, uh, conscious and unconscious, to uh, reinvent and re reform it. But I think uh, at the same time, uh, you know, when you look at the, the demonstrations in big cities and small towns, um, that, you know, the whites, the white young people who were showing up, uh, and um, and uh, standing, if not shoulder to shoulder, then six feet apart um, in uh, in these demonstrations. What that tells me, it, it, in some ways, is that that way of thinking about the world, and tr you know, you you know, that ideology which is used, which people use to make sense of their world and their place in the world, it, it doesn't explain. It doesn't have the same power to explain. And so something else is being formed or being forged in these demonstrations and in these community meetings and in other campaigns attached to it. Uh, that is, uh, I, I guess I would say, we have to turn the page and see what happens in the next chapter. So I'm, yeah. I'm mindful that there is that that 
that the entrenched powers will will tr continue to promote that, but I, how how well it will work, um, I think it remains to be seen. Yeah, and that you know the whole notion of what those that are in power will will do, and uh, when Tim was saying, you know. Um, same song, different verse, you know, mm -hmm. you think about the systems of oppression. And when we look at uh, the response to, you know, Black folk uh, having some political power and economic power in Wilmington in, in the 1890s and, you, and the response to that. And so when we think about, you know, not allowing for them to have jobs or build that economic wealth and the property that was lost and the businesses that were lost, the inability to have firearms to protect themselves, um, the deputizing of whites uh, to police black communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when we look at the, you know, what was happening in Wilmington in 1970, Mm -hmm. And Ken and Tim, we're going to have to have you on the show again so we can talk about the Wilmington 10. But we see the same systems of oppression being, you know, in place during that time period as well. So even though the, the grassroots, you know, and the community organizing was advancing, you still had the systemic oppression. So when we think about, uh, you know, even though there was the integration of the schools, the black children weren't getting the same quality education as the white children. And when we think about the guns and the availability of guns to protect themselves, the you know black folk didn't have access to those. And again, deputizing of whites, disparity in policing, prosecutorial misconduct. And then we look today and we look at our systems and you can go down that exact same list. So you could go down the list in you know 1898, go down the list in 1970, go down the list today. And so Yes, I, I absolutely agree. We, we see this progress, but in order to have real meaningful change, we, we do have to look at what those that are in charge are doing. And we've got to break down the systems because it's wonderful that people are protesting and this information is coming to light. Uh, but until we can actually change the systems, um, we're going to be here another, you know, 25 years. We're going to be going down this same list, even though people are beginning to kind of open their eyes and, and move together. Um, I had not mean, meant to take up the, the last few minutes, but uh, apparently I did. Yes. And uh, so, but we're going to have to have you both back because, yeah, this is a conversation that, that we definitely need to continue and um both of you have written just absolutely wonderful books. Uh, and we do want to talk about the Wilmington 10 because that's part of this uh, really important North Carolina history that too many people don't know. Too many people in North Carolina don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but we are out of time and we'd like to thank our wonderful guests for taking time out of their busy schedule to be with us and share their wisdom. Timothy Tyson, who is a historian, author of many books, and the Senior Research Scholar at the Duke University Center of Documentary Studies, and Kenneth Jenkin, who is also a wonderful author of uh, a great book on the Wilmington 10, uh, and he's a professor of the African American and Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And my co-host Irving Joyner and I uh, appreciate their time. We also appreciate you spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss the show on Sunday, you can find our show on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Until next week, stay informed, engaged, and safe.